Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles? Open your Bibles to Luke 15. You can stand with me for reading God's Word. After Pastor, is my mic on? It's on, isn't it? After Pastor Nathan made that announcement, Katie leaned over and she said, "Did you know that?" And I said, "No." And I said, "Did Jill tell you?" And Katie said, "No." Man, you just—they just kept it to themselves. Didn't even tell. <laughs> All right. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves in the middle of the parable of the prodigal son. Tell this morning's sermon is "Be Imitators of God the Father Toward." We're going to read verses 22 through 24. The father said to his servants, "Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate." For this, my son was dead, this is the new verse for this morning, and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You may be seated. Father, I thank you so much for, for this parable. It's so rich. It's given us such a great window into your heart toward repentant sinners. Um, I pray, Lord, this morning there would be more application that we can apply to our lives some of the things that we have learned about you and we've appreciated the weeks of insight and understanding, but we want to do something with it. We want to be uh, Im- imitators of you and our relationships with others, and so help us to see how you were toward your son and what application that has for us and our relationships with others. We don't just want to understand you, Father. We want to be like you, and so I pray that your word would transform us to help us become more like you were toward your son with those that we encounter in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by sharing something with you that I could have shared last week. I developed this conviction while preparing for that sermon. I was wrong about my earlier understanding of the prodigal son, and so if you remember when we began this parable, I said that the third one was different than the previous two parables in this chapter. I said that the first two parables were about conversion, but the third parable of the prodigal son was about the repentance or return of a backslidden believer. You guys remember me saying that by chance? And the reason I said it was because the son began the parable as a son. And so I looked and said, well, hey, if he's a son and he leaves home, but then he comes back, this isn't someone getting saved. This is someone who's backslidden, right? This is a son of God who rebels but then returns. But I became convinced because of the incredibly strong language uh, that we encountered last week of, of what the son was given that, and what we see this morning about him being lost and then found and then dead and alive, that in fact, this son is as much uh, an instance of conversion as the lost coin and lost sheep. So in last Sunday's sermon, you, you might have even caught me leaning this way because I said what the father did with the prodigal son pictures what God the father does with repentant sinners He makes us sons and heirs, and everything the prodigal son receives symbolizes what we receive when we become God's children. And so I was preparing that sermon last week and seeing everything that the father lavished on his son and realized, hey, this must be a picture of conversion. If I have to choose, you know, I definitely lean more this way now. And the other reason I'm convinced the prodigal son is a picture of conversion versus a backslidden believer is in verse 24. The father said, my son was dead. He's alive again, he was lost, and now he's found, and they began to celebrate. And so, actually, I'm going to give you a lesson to make this clear. Lesson one, the prodigal son represents repentant sinners passing from death to life. So lesson one, the prodigal son represents repentant sinners passing from death to life. 
he is as much a picture of salvation or a sinner being saved as the lost sheep and the lost coin that were found. Notice the father's description of his son's experience. He said he was dead and then alive, he was lost, and then he was found. Now, was he any of these things physically? He wasn't. He wasn't any of these things physically. You can't even say that he was lost physically because we know where he was. He went off to Gentile territory. So it's clear that when the father made these statements about his son being lost and then found dead and then alive, he's not talking physically, he's talking what? Spiritually about him. He was spiritually dead, now he's spiritually alive, he's spiritually lost, now he's spiritually found. Now up to this point, there's a little new imagery introduced here that we haven't seen earlier. We've seen the language of lost to found. The sheep was lost and then found. The coin was lost and then found. What's the new imagery that's introduced here? Not just lost and found, but what? Dead and alive. That's the first time we've seen that imagery in this chapter. But it's imagery that's frequently found elsewhere in Scripture, especially in Ephesians 2. I'm not going to have you turn there, but that might be the strongest place in the New Testament. Just one verse from that, Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were what? We were dead in our trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. John 5, 24 describes what happened with the Son. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life, which is what happens every time a sinner is saved. They pass from death to life. The prodigal son passed from death to life, so it wasn't just finding, here's what's, here's what's better about this imagery. It wasn't just finding a, a lost coin, a lost sheep, or a lost son. It was actually getting a son back from the dead. I mean, consider how incredible that would be for us, and it seems to be the same joy that, that God the Father has in heaven, and perhaps greater joy when he receives someone uh, unto salvation. Consider this familiar verse. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are beautiful parallels in this parable between the prodigal son coming to his earthly father and us coming to our heavenly father as Jesus described in this verse. For example, verse 24 says that the prodigal was lost. And what did Jesus say about himself? I am the... Oh, I thought we'd do better than that. Let's try that again. <laughs> so the son is lost, and Jesus says, I am the... In verse 17, this one's a little tougher, but he was ignorant. He didn't know. He had to come to his senses. And Jesus says, I am the truth. Verse 24, the son says he was dead, and Jesus says, I am the, the life. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking uh, at, I hope, a very full and clear picture of our Heavenly Father, one that I believe is unique in, in all of Scripture. We've considered His forgiveness, that He chooses not to remember our sins anymore, His graciousness and kindness, His compassion and, and pity toward repentant sinners. I hope this has given you a better more affectionate view of your Heavenly Father. I know that my affection for Him has grown as I've been studying these sermons. But with that said, 
there has been something nagging me for weeks that I've wanted to resolve, and today is the day to do that, because after this, we actually go to what is almost like a whole new parable. Even though it's about the other son, this parable really has come to an end here, because when did the previous two parables come to an end? They came to an end when the lost coin was found and when the lost sheep was found, and so because this lost son is found, this should be the end of the parable, if it kept the pattern from the other ones. But we're almost beginning what's like a new parable with the other son and so i definitely wanted to to bring a few loose ends uh to get, you know clear up a few loose ends here and this is the first one brings us to lesson two forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences i want to make sure to address this before moving on to the other son Consider how readily and joyfully, wonderfully, lovingly the father receives back his son. We've been talking about it for weeks, so I don't need to belabor it, but there's no probationary period, there's no consequences. But what could that lead us to think? It could lead us to think that if we sin and repent, there are no what? Consequences. Or worse, when this son came back, not only were there not any consequences, he was lavished with gifts, which could cause you to think what about your repentance? I'm committing this sin. I am convicted about it. I want to repent. Your mind goes to the parable of the prodigal son, which it should. And then you think, I saw the way the father lavished his son with gifts when he repented, so I will repent and be lavished with gifts and rewards following my repentance. Imagine someone reads this account and they conclude, if I confess my sin, then God is going to treat me, God the father is going to treat me because the father in the parable of the prodigal son is a picture of him, like that father treated his rebellious son. He'll lavish me with gifts. I'm going to receive the best robe, and I'm going to get the shoes on my feet, and I'm going to get the ring of authority, and there's going to be a big celebration for me. Then the person repents, but they don't experience any rewards, and instead, they even end up suffering consequences for their sin, even though they are forgiven. So they repent, they're forgiven, but then they suffer consequences because of their sins. And so I want to be really clear about what this parable is and is not intended to communicate. The parable is intended to communicate that when sinners repent, God the Father has compassion on them or on us, just like he did with his son when he saw him in the distance. He wants to forgive those repentant sinners, and he wants to receive them as readily and joyfully and lovingly and graciously as the father in the parable received the prodigal son. But the parable is not intended to communicate that there are no consequences for our sins when we're forgiven, or that we could be given gifts, you know, the best robe, shoes, and ring when we repent. There is a saying that could not be worse for the Christian life. And it's the saying that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. That could be true in other areas of life, but it is not true in the Christian life because often 
when you're forgiven, there are still consequences, which makes a lot of people wish that they had asked for permission first, not received it, and then not engaged in that sin because of how much they were suffering. A couple months ago, I told you that the Christian life, it's largely a pursuit of trying to avoid ditches. Uh, And sometimes when we find ourselves in one ditch, if we're fortunate enough to get ourselves out of it, instead of heading toward the middle of the road, we, we uh, swing too far to the other extreme and find ourselves in the other ditch. I'd like to make sure that we don't overcorrect and put ourselves in any of these ditches. And so regarding forgiveness and the consequences of our sins, there are two ditches we can fall into, and I'd like us to be able to avoid both of them. One ditch is we can think that because we're forgiven, there are no consequences multiple examples of this in scripture i don't need to belabor it i'm sure some of them come to mind one of the more obvious ones is david and i like that example because nathan told david after he repented that the lord had done what with david's sins what did nathan say to david the lord has taken away your sins it's it's like new covenant language in the old covenant i mean we're told john sees jesus and he says behold the lamb of god who takes away sins you can almost look and see what happened with David and say that new covenant forgiveness is being prefigured through him. You're getting a window into the beauty of the new covenant in the old covenant or under the old covenant with David. But what happened in the future with David? Incredibly painful and terrible consequences. Nathan said, basically Nathan said, you're forgiven, but the sword's never going to depart from your house and he suffered family problems or home problems, some of the worst problems to experience until the day he died, till his last breath. So the other ditch that we can experience is consequences from our sins and then believe that we're not forgiven. So here's what happens. Someone confesses, they're convinced they're forgiven, but then they suffer consequences of their sins and what do they tend to think? Well, God must not have forgiven me. If he had forgiven me, then I wouldn't be suffering right now. There wouldn't be any consequences. So that's the other ditch that we can find ourselves in. How many people have been convicted, repented, been forgiven, but still suffered because of the decisions they made and then thought that that meant that God had not forgiven them for what they've done? And so both of these ditches are ones to avoid. It is an understandable belief, but it's a tragic one because it's incorrect. So over the years, as you revisit this parable, be encouraged by how joyfully God the Father wants to receive your repentance. When you're wondering how he feels about you repenting, picture that father running toward his son, throwing his arms around him, lavishing him with kisses and then gifts. But don't believe that when we sin and are forgiven, that that means that there will not be any consequences or worse, that we're going to end up being rewarded like the prodigal son was. And then the third thing is, when we are forgiven and we experience consequences for those sins, don't let that cause you to believe that you haven't been forgiven for those sins in the first place. Now, I want to go a different direction for a moment. We're going to try try to tie up another loose end here. This will end up relating to the parable. If even only a few of you have never heard this before, then I believe it would be worth me sharing this just to avoid, uh, help you avoid the false teaching of the cults. One of the, one of the signs that you're dealing with the cults, the cults, or one of the most uh, common evidences of a cult is the denial of the triune nature of God. 
One of the things the cults have in common is they deny the triune nature of God, largely because the New Testament mentions God and Jesus separately. So that's what that's born from, is they look and they see God mentioned, they see Jesus mentioned, and so they say they must be separate and Jesus can't be God. He can't be divine. There's no deity there with him. But when the New Testament mentions God, most of the time it is referring to God the Father. Just like when it mentions Jesus, it's referring to God the Son. So probably over 90-something percent of the times when you read in the New Testament and it says God, it is talking about God the Father. Obviously, when it mentions Jesus, it's talking about God the Son. Now, as we've read this parable, I focused on God the Father because the Father of the prodigal son serves as a picture of him, and I wanted us to learn what we could about him. But listen to these verses. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So one more time, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So that's an example right there, right? Of Paul mentioning God and Christ in the same verse, which would cause cults to say that they are separate and Jesus can't be God. Listen to the next verse. It goes to the next chapter, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so this means to be imitators of God the Father. Well, we've spent weeks talking about God the Father, who he is, what he's like. And I would be remiss if Ephesians 5, 1 tells us to be like God the Father, and we didn't spend any time talking about what we can learn about our behavior toward others from this parable, dealing with God the Father. And so we're going to spend some time talking about what we see the Father being like toward others and consider what application that has for us in our relationship with others. And this brings us to Lesson 3, Part 1. Be imitators of God the Father toward Part 1, Repentant Children. Lesson 3, be imitators of God the Father toward Part 1, Repentant Children. We can learn a lot from the father in the parable to apply to our relationships with our children. And so we've largely focused on what the father did do, but I would say that what he didn't do is almost as impressive. When his son came home, he didn't say, what were you thinking? How could you be so stupid? Yeah, you really should be sorry. Now you need to go spend all these years working off the sin that you've committed. Do you see the incredible application that this would have for us as parents when our children are humble and repentant? Do you see how much we could learn by looking at God the Father's example toward repentant children, repentant children and apply that or repentant sinners and apply that toward our relationships with our children when they are repentant? So when our children humble themselves and repent, they should be encouraged, uh, they should be loved, they should not be reminded of that sin. Now, the obvious question is, what if our children are not repentant? What if our children are still prodigals? And I suspect for some of you, that would be the question that you might be asking more than the previous one. I'm not sure that there are many things that are more painful for parents than having prodigal children. If you find yourself in this situation, you can look at the father's behavior toward his son while that son was still a prodigal to see how to behave toward your child, who is a prodigal. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Be imitators of God the Father toward part two, prodigal children. 
be imitators of God the Father toward part two prodigal children. Now, obviously, most, the, the parable gives the most attention toward the father's behavior toward his son after that son repented. But there's still an amount we can learn from the father regarding his behavior toward his son while he was still a prodigal. At the very beginning of the parable, it's really instructive. The father shocks all of us by letting his son leave. Is there application for parents in that? There absolutely is. We can't control our children. We can't chain them up. We can't suspect that they're going to do something wrong and tell them, well, I'm going to keep you in your room. It's going to be padlocked shut, but when you shape up and become a Christian, then I'll finally let you out. And so the way that the father let his son go is instructive for the way that there are times parents need to let their children go. But the other thing is this. After the father gives his son the inheritance in verse 12, we don't see the father again until verse 20. All the attention is on the son while he's off in Gentile territory ruining his life. When we do see the father again, we get an idea of what he was doing while the son was gone. Briefly look at verse 20. It says, he arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the father did two things that we can learn from. First, he saw the son while he was still a long way off, which tells us that the father was doing what while his son was gone? He was waiting. He was waitingly patiently for him. He had not given up on him. And so what we can do if we have prodigal children is we can wait for them. And then second, we can make sure that we don't give up on them. It is evident the father never gave up on his son, even though he was far away, and we should never give up on any prodigal children, even if they seem far away. So one commentator put it this way, letting a child go doesn't mean giving up on that child. Now, obviously, we all know we should pray for prodigal children. I even considered putting that here, but I just thought it was so obvious. We all know to pray for prodigal children. I wanted to offer another encouragement while you're waiting, while you're not giving up, while you're praying for that prodigal child, be encouraged by Proverbs 22, 6, which says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That verse can be a blessing or a curse, depending on how you understand it. Proverbs 22, 6, it, it's surprising how polarizing it is to people. There are individuals who have found Proverbs 22.6 to be greatly encouraging, and there are individuals who have found Proverbs 22.6 to be a curse in their relationships to the Lord because they can feel like God lied to them. Do you see how Proverbs 22.6 could cause some people to feel that way when they have a prodigal child? And it comes down to how you understand the Proverbs. It's crucially important that you never open Proverbs and think you're looking at promises. Instead, Proverbs is filled with generalities. Proverbs describes how life generally works. Are there some Proverbs about working hard and becoming rich? Well, how many people have worked hard and not become rich? But generally, the idea is if you work hard, you'll make money and you'll do better than the lazy person, right? So Proverbs is filled with all this wisdom that describes what life is generally like. And there's verses about relationships. There's verses about forgiveness and kindness and, and lust and just so many wonderful, wonderful principles for us here. 
but it's really important we never believe that they're guarantees. And so the, for, for the person who thinks Proverbs, Proverbs is filled with guarantees, they look at Proverbs 22.6, and I'm not kidding, this is what they do. They say, God lied. He lied to me in his word. He said, if I trained up my child, my child was going to go that way. And my child hasn't. I, and there, there can be people, their faith can be so devastated by this when a child rebels because they believe that they've done so many things right and and they knew that if they raised this child the right way then the child would always do exactly what the parents wanted and when that child didn't they thought you know what i can look at this verse i see it right here and so god must have lied to me in his word proverbs is filled with generalities and not guarantees and if you believe that or recognize that, then you can be encouraged by this verse. God is not promising that if we train up our children the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it. But God is saying that generally, when we train up children the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it. And that should give us great encouragement while we pray and wait for our prodigal children to return home. And there's one more way that I believe we can learn from the Father, and this brings us to the last part of Lesson 3. Be imitators of God the Father toward part three, repentant sinners. Be imitators of God the Father toward part three, repentant sinners. The way the Father responds to his son isn't just a good example of how to respond to repentant children. It's also a good example of how to respond to repentant sinners. The Father received a son joyfully, lovingly following his repentance, and we should receive repentant people joyfully and lovingly following their repentance. And I want to illustrate the danger of not doing this by showing you some verses in 2 Corinthians 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we won't turn back to Luke. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 2. So here's the background. When I think about the Corinthians, if I had to choose one word for them, it would be zealous. <laughs> and there are four different verses in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, 2 Corinthians 7, 7, 7, 11, and, or, and chapter 9, verse 2, that calls them zealous. Even in Kirk's devotional, he was talking about them being very zealous regarding eating, it seems, right? So what's one of the dangers for zealous people? Being extreme. The danger with zeal is it can lead us to be with the extreme, and this was the case with them. So we know that we should be loving and gracious, but they went to the extreme of being loving and gracious that caused them to ignore sin. So there was a man in the church who was sexually immoral. Instead of confronting this sin, they were actually proud of how loving and gracious they were, or tolerant, toward this individual that perhaps would have been removed or at least confronted in other churches. So Paul confronts them about that and says, you're handling this completely wrongly. You need to remove him from the church if he won't repent. So they do remove him from the church. And then he does repent. And because they're incredibly zealous, now they swing the pendulum to the other extreme and guess what they won't do with this man, even though he's repentant they won't bring him back. So when they're zeal, they're going to keep him outside the church. The church is for holy people, not sinful people like this man, right? So he needs to stay out there. He can't come in here and be with us. Okay, now, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Did I tell you the chapter? Is that where you guys are? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. 
Paul says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. And so Paul says, this man has actually, he's pained me, but he's pained all of you even more. And if you've ever been part of church discipline, that's what he's talking about here. You know how incredibly painful it is to have to, to go through that. For the whole church, it's painful. And that's what he's talking about. Verse 6, Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, or it has been enough. And I want you to notice the word majority there, because church discipline is only effective when the majority support it. If there's only a minority behind it, then it is not going to produce repentance. I was part of another church before this one, and there was a young lady who had uh, gotten pregnant out of marriage, and she would not repent, and she was put under church discipline, and many of the people in the church would not support the church discipline, and, and I suppose they thought that they were uh, being loving by making her feel good about what she had done, or at least preventing her from feeling bad about it, and it ended up being very detrimental to her spiritually because she never recognized that her relationship outside of marriage was fornication or was a sin. The word enough in the verse that says the punishment by the majority is enough refers to the discipline they carried out against the man, and Paul probably means this two ways. First, he means that what the disciplined man had been through had been enough, or it had been sufficient. It wasn't too severe. Paul wasn't looking back with regret. So he's, in his second letter, Paul wasn't looking back on his first letter and saying, I was too harsh or I was cruel. He says it has been enough. It has been sufficient. He doesn't think he overreacted and he doesn't think the church overreacted. But he also probably means it's enough and that it should come to an end because it was sufficient to bring about the repentance, which is when church discipline concludes. Now look at verse 7. He says, so because of that, you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him. So he says, now you need to do, so in his first letter, you need to do the opposite of what you're doing. Instead of loving this person who's sexually immoral, you need to confront the person. And now he says, now you need to do the opposite again. Instead of continuing to confront the person, now you need to love the person because he has repented. But not only that, I want you to notice that he also says that the person should be comforted. Why would someone need to be comforted if they've repented and are coming back to fellowship? Because what are some of the questions that they would have? What does everyone think about me? How are they feeling toward me? Are they upset with me? Do they wish I wasn't here? Do they wish that I hadn't come back? And so Paul says, because someone could be feeling that way, they need to be comforted upon returning to fellowship. Now, someone might say this, if people repent and return to fellowship, they need to be treated just like everyone else. That's actually not true. That would not be doing enough for the person. Because not everyone needs what? Not everyone needs to be comforted. If you're not struggling or hurting, we're not expected to receive comfort from people. So the fact that Paul says you need to comfort this person says, is his way of saying, you're going to need to go above and beyond this person and do more for him or for her than you would for the other people in the congregation. Make extra effort with them. And I would assume this looks like saying things along the lines of, we've missed you. 
We're so glad to see you again. I'm so glad you're back. Praise God for what he's done in your life. And then look at why this is so important. Verse 7 goes on and he says, so the person wouldn't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So we know from a few chapters later, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow produces what? Godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. That's what had produced this man's repentance. He experienced godly sorrow. But Paul's point is sorrow can be excessive if people continue to sorrow following their repentance and they don't receive the comfort that they should, it can be excessive. It can be too much for them. So verse 8, he says, I'm begging you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So notice the words obedient in everything. So this is not an encouragement. Paul isn't providing a recommendation here. This is an issue of obedience or disobedience. Verse 10, he goes on, he says, Assume that whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And the, the part of this that I want you to notice is where Paul says, in the presence of Christ. So that means taking place with Christ's approval, or probably even with Christ's authority, which is how it's translated in some Bibles, like the NLT. Paul says, I'm doing this with Christ's authority for your benefit. The same principle seems to be discussed in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Or here's the principle. Let me make this really clear. It seems to be saying to me, and other places, such as Matthew 18, make the same point, that when the church does something, heaven recognizes it, or appreciates it, or approves it, or affirms it. Heaven takes notice of what the church does. Listen to some of the verses that make this point. I'll read the most well-known verses about church discipline, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, some people think that the moment a sin is told to the church, that that person is now under church discipline. But that's not true. The church is told for what reason? Why is the church told? So that they can then reach out to the person. Paul goes on, he says, or Jesus goes on, he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the idea is, when the church is told, the person has not been removed from fellowship yet. The church is told so they can help, so they can reach out and appeal to that person. And, and hopefully see repentance so that the person doesn't have to be removed. But if the person still won't listen to the church, then they need to be removed. Then church discipline is, is performed and they're separated from the body, officially removed from fellowship. Now listen to the next verse, which doesn't often get as much attention. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does Jesus mean 
when he talks about binding and loosing on earth and then being bound or loosed in heaven it means heaven looks at what happens in the church and affirms that appreciates that recognizes that heaven recognizes what happens in biblically ordered churches and so when the gospel is preached in the church and people are saved heaven recognizes that we've been talking about that in luke 15 what does heaven do when the gospel is preached and someone becomes part of the church heaven rejoices or celebrates celebration or joy in the presence of the angels similarly when people are put under church discipline and removed from the church heaven recognizes that too now that is incredibly sobering to me i've met people who've said well it doesn't matter what the what the church thinks i only care what god thinks what's the problem with that these verses seem to be saying that god agrees with the church about the person's condition the church is the body of christ in his physical absence after his ascension to heaven and so what happens in and with and through the church has eternal and heavenly consequences so it is there's nothing really more sobering or somber than what biblically ordered churches say about people because heaven appreciates that so all that to say church discipline is an incredibly serious issue both when people are put out of the church and when they should be received back and so that's why paul commands and he says if they if this person repents you need to receive him back lovingly it needs to be excessive it needs to be joyful and wonderful it needs to look like luke 15. we had a an individual there if you have any questions about the church discipline that has occurred here in the time that i've um, been pastoring or a couple cases that preceded my ministry here and uh, we're here when i came come and see me about that after service but because it's only something we share with members it's not something that we we share uh, publicly in case there's guests present but i will say this there was one person who was under church discipline when i came remained under church discipline for a couple years and then repented and i cannot tell you how wonderful and joyful it was to be able to receive that person back some of you are, who maybe even been here years are wondering and saying well who exactly is he talking about but that's the thing you don't know because we don't talk about it right there's no reason to talk about someone's sins because if we're going to imitate god and god chooses not to remember our sins then what we should try the best we can to not remember people's sins we not revisit them or talk about them again now i know many people take church discipline seriously one of the more common questions that i've received as a pastor i mean take church discipline seriously here some churches don't practice church discipline at all which i think is is uh, incredibly unfortunate that's a reflection of that church's view of people's souls and salvation to not to not practice church discipline but people here take it seriously so i've been asked how do we behave toward people who've been put under church discipline go ahead and leave corinthians and turn to thessalonians second thessalonians this is the last place we'll turn this morning second thessalonians 3 so corinthians galatians ephesians philippians colossians thessalonians second thessalonians 3 We'll start at verse 14. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 3, look at verse 14. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. 
And this is the same language that is used in other places discussing church discipline. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, which is synonymous with have nothing to do with them. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and that avoid them or have nothing to do with them. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division or is divisive, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Again, the same language in Thessalonians. So we can see that this passage here parallels or is synonymous with the other passages dealing with church discipline. Now, based on what we read in verse 14, it looks like, because this is what the verse says, that you're not to have anything to do with the person. But it's not as literal as it sounds because there should be some interaction based on the next verse. Look at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him or her as a brother or as a sister. So first it says to have nothing to do with them, and now it says to warn them. And you can't have both, can you? (laughs) I mean, if you take it so literally that you have nothing to do with them, then you're not going to warn them. And if you're going to warn them, then you're going to have something to do with them. So which is it? Well, I think these verses are some of the most important in the New Testament regarding understanding how to behave or act toward people under church discipline. They strike this balance perfectly. So you're not going to seek the person out. When was the time to seek the person out? When was that time? Earlier, when we read Matthew 18, right? You tell it to the church, and then the church seeks out the person. But if they refuse to listen to the church and are removed, that time for seeking them out is over. But at the same time, we're not going to completely avoid them, which is to say if you see them, you know, you're at the the supermarket, and you turn down the aisle at the same time, and you make eye contact. Don't take this verse to mean that you turn and then immediately find the farthest aisle away from them that you can. Or you're walking down the sidewalk, and you turn a corner, and you see them you're not supposed to run the other direction. But what are you supposed to do when you meet them? What are you supposed to do? The verse says it. It's not not a trick question or anything. What does the verse say to do with them? It says warn them. So when you run into them, you warn them. And this also tells us what not to do. Let's just talk first about what it tells us to do. It means reminding them of the consequences of their sin. I would say both in this life and the next. So say things like this. Say, we miss you. We love you. We hope you will repent. We would love to see you back in fellowship. You can say, think about your eternity. Think about your relationship with the Lord. Now, if the person's unrepentant, they're probably not going to like this language from you. But the Bible doesn't command us to be popular, does it? And so the question isn't, how is this person going to feel when I say this to him or her? The question is, what does God's word tell me to do? And God's word tells me to warn the person. The most important thing is to encourage repentance. Now, the fact that it says to warn also tells us what not to do. There's not going to be a bunch of chit-chat. There's not going to be small talk. Because that would communicate that everything is okay when it's not. That would be heading toward the same relationship with the person that you had before they were put under church discipline. And there must be this dramatic change. So they must not feel like everything is fine. They must recognize the separation or distance in the relationship because of church discipline. So you're not going to be rude, but I would say you're also not going to be overly friendly. You're not going to say, oh, hey, how are you doing? How's work? How's life? Tell me all about your children. I haven't seen you in so long. Fill me in on everything that's been happening. 
And actually, the reason you don't need to say how's life is because you know the answer to that. You know how they're doing. They're living in unrepentant sin. They're separated from the church. Their soul is in jeopardy. So why would you talk to them about anything else? Everything else pales in comparison to the reality of their spiritual condition. So you're not going to ask about anything else because all those things are trivial. It's going to be all business. Also look at the verse, you're not going to view them as what? You're not going to view them as what? What does it say there? You're not going to view them as an enemy. What are our enemies? There's three of them. I believe I've said this many times. What are the three enemies we face? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. Those are the three enemies we face. Unrepentant sinners who have been removed from the church are not our enemies. Instead, it says, as a brother. And this is interesting. I mean, the balance that the Bible can strike, the language it can use, the precision of it is just beautiful to me at times or all the time. And this is one of those instances because it doesn't say the person's a believer. It doesn't say the person's a Christian. It's synonymous with the supplement, supplementary passage, 1 Corinthians 5.11, which says someone who bears the name of a, of a brother. What does that mean, they bear that name? That means they identify themselves as Christians, but it doesn't say that they are Christians. In the NIV, claims to be a brother, or in the New King James, is named a brother, or in the NASB, it says, this is my favorite, a so-called brother. So it's not saying the person is a brother or sister in Christ. It's just saying that that's how they want to see themselves. Now, because we're dealing with someone who will hopefully be back in fellowship with us in the future, the warning should be done with what sort of attitude? Because we're dealing with someone who could be a brother or sister back in fellowship with us in the future, how should this warning be done? It should be done what? Kindly, gently, lovingly, perhaps communicating the sorrow that you're feeling associated with this person's separation from you. And that's the type of attitude that's going to more easily allow the ultimate goal of church discipline, which is what? Restoration. Actually, so I want, so you, you could say repentance. We're going to go past that. We're going to go from repentance to restoration, reconciliation, brought back into fellowship. But if the person's treated like an enemy, then the reconciliation following repentance is going to be even more difficult. Now, I want to conclude with a good motivator for our action toward others, and it's the gospel. Going back to the earlier two verses that I mentioned, Ephesians 4.32, listen to this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And it doesn't stop there. It's very tempting to stop there and just deal with the, the command. Be kind, be tender, forgive. But what does it say after that which gives us the motivation for doing so? As God in Christ forgave you. And then the next verse says, therefore be imitators of god as beloved children so we should be imitators of god the father toward others we should be kind tender-hearted forgiving because that is how god the father has been toward us through christ so when we think about our motivation or reasons for behaving these way toward these ways toward repentant people or prodigal children, repentant children, unrepentant children, repentant 
friends, whatever the case, our unrepentant friends, our motivation for treating them the way that we've been talking about is simply that God the Father has treated us that way through Christ. Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the kindness, the, the tenderness, the love and graciousness that has been shown to us through your Son, and we would pray that we could be imitators of you who would, or, or vessels who, of, of those same qualities, that same kindness and tenderness and compassion in our relationships with others. Lord, so help us to be motivated by the gospel to draw on the way that you have treated us through Christ in our treatment with others, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.